Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Ron Trent is hardly an old man by American house music standards, but he's certainly one of the genre's key veterans. By his account, he started DJing before he turned 10, and in his early teens in the 1980s, he started tinkering with drum machines and synthesizers. During that time, he produced one of Chicago's all-time classics in the form of Altered States, a sprawling jack track that got caned by the likes of Ron Hardy and Frankie Knuckles. His own productions, his classic collaborations with Shea Damier, and the music he helped bring into the world via the seminal prescription imprint would grow lusher and more musically complex, spurred on by a move to New York, where he held a residency at the classic party Giant Step, and his own development as a musician. He's been back in Chicago for a while now, and more recently, back to a busy touring schedule which is how Ron found his way to our Berlin office for a chat that lets some valuable perspective to this journey. You know, you mentioned when you first walked in that this trip, this sort of extended period that you've been in Europe, was your first time over here in 20 years? Yeah, 20 years at least. Um, Yeah, I came to Berlin and I think last time I was here, it had to be like 1994. Previous to that, it had been in like 92, 93. So at that time, you know, it was not a developed Berlin at the time, you know, it was more uh, uh, scarce <laughs> everything. It's quite a different city than it was <laughs> so, back then, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's actually wonderful to come back and see the development in the city. You know, at that time when I was coming, Frankfurt was kind of like the city that was being well, you know, was well maintained and being developed and that kind of thing. So come back and see this progress, man. It's something else. And how has this trip been for you as a, as a DJ? Uh, great, man, actually. I mean, you know, I stepped away from the whole DJing, touring thing for a couple of years um, for various reasons. But uh, it's good to be back out here and uh, in this way and having people being very receptive of like what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, me feeling also confident about what I'm doing as well, you know, uh, having a good grasp of what's you know, what's going on, uh, you know, this, the industry has been changing and changing and this, that, and other, you know. So I think people really, uh, at this point, they seem to be really interested in the roots, uh, which is good because it gives us a chance to reevaluate uh, what's been going on in the last 20 years that hasn't really, if you ask me, led to any kind of major progress in terms of music. And what I mean by that is like, it's like uh, technology has moved on, but it seems to be a constant uh, trying to copy other things. Everybody sounds the same, you know, and getting interested in things that are from the past and sampling the past instead of getting inspired from the past and creating something new. 
Well, and it's kind of a very codified version of that sort of past house sound. Uh, yeah. You know, when you were first getting into house, uh, which was at the very beginning of house, it was a much more open thing. It, yeah. it wasn't this one particular sound, right? Right. Well, it was it was more or less uh, expression, and everybody's expression is different. You know, so therefore it was you know open to everybody's interpretation of that. But the roots and the basis of what it was about was was very just like you know second nature. You know, it wasn't like this thing that somebody read about on the net or it wasn't this thing that somebody told you about and you know yeah there was always you know the the idea of the you know the first as we say the first school which is was a predominantly gay community that were having these you know parties and that kind of thing and how did the culture develop you know which was very enter, you know, together, kind of like we're not, you know, we're not amongst the public, we're not amongst the people kind of thing. Uh, a mentality that was developed, you know, out of the, the the idea that, you know, public put a, you know, a rude eye on being gay and that kind of thing. So obviously they, you know, they created their own, they created their own way, you know, and in that, you know, uh, private clubs and things of that nature, you know, uh, gave birth to another whole culture. So yeah, things were passed down from there in terms of word of mouth because you know if you're a young heterosexual man or heterosexual woman, of course you didn't go to those parties necessarily. Yeah, they were they were insular in a way, but they were also very inclusive. Yeah, um, well later, because at first it was more like uh, you know because I mean you know you don't want us, so we don't necessarily want you <laughs> either. So sure. you know I mean you know, things like the warehouse and uh, the loft and gallery and all these other places. You know they were uh, it was a older generation, predominantly gay, predominantly black and Latino. You know and uh, you hear stories about these things. You know, but uh, that in which I experienced, which was more like the, the I like to say the second school. Uh, it was more the, you know, getting starting to get a little bit more heterosexual, uh, starting to, you know, advance in terms of what the, the culture and the sound was about, you know. So it was a different kind of thing. But it was it was confirmed and defined in a sense of there was a certain ethic that was applied to it, you know. Yeah, that, that second school that you mentioned, I mean, that was sort of when you got directly involved, maybe. But... I mean, you started DJing when you were something uh, when like I was 14, a kid. you know? Well, no, I mean? actually, I started when I started playing when I was eight, no, no, nine. So 1982 uh, is when I started messing around. So, I mean, you were you were a kid at the very beginning of house. I mean, do you remember a time before house music? Yeah, because um, my, my dad was, uh, I was a disco kid too. You know, so my, my dad uh, was a record pool director. I always tell talk about this, you know, and of course at the time I didn't really understand what that was, but my dad used to play records basically. And he used to run a record pool, which means servicing, you know, new promo copies to club DJs, you know, and getting feedback from them and, you know, then sending that information back to the, the, the company in which, you know, they were directly involved with, you know, whether it be Atlantic Records or whether it be, you know, uh, Buddha records, whether it be, you know, some independent. And uh, actually, this was something that's actually a culture was developed out of uh, David McCrusoe and, and uh, his crew, which later became For the Record, which is what now is Def Mix, Julius Weinstein. 
uh, you know, that's kind of how that whole thing started, actually. Uh, anyway, I grew, up, I grew up around that and, and, you know, and I used to play, you know, I, I played instruments. I played kungas and trap drums and I used to like to play the records and that kind of thing. That was my thing, you know, but uh, I didn't really get interested into the DJ thing until I had an older cousin that, you know, got a mixer. You know, I didn't even know what the hell. I was like, mixer? What is that? Making cakes? What do you, what do you want to do? <laughs> What's going with that? But I later found out, obviously, you know, obviously this was uh, more directly connected to what my dad was doing. And, uh, of course, I went to little kitty discos and things in nature in the late 70s. But that was my experience. It was never, you know, like, oh, yeah, I used to go to the warehouse. No, I was I was in the disco. And that kind of thing, you know. Yeah, I would imagine if your dad is running a record pool, you're probably hearing a lot of really incredible music yeah. at home. Radio was a little different then, too. You know, radio was a little bit more innovative and soulful and things of that nature. And you actually had DJs that chose the records themselves, you know what I mean? So they were, you know, going out and getting things and testing things, you know, and, and DJs were also going out, too, you know what I'm saying? So they had more of a more open mind to things. So the radio was different. So I was always tuned into that, you know, and and my dad would come and, you know, get some of those records that I was interested in, you know, and, and, and we would have those things before anybody else kind of thing, you know, so which was interesting, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you may have been too young to, you know, to go to the warehouse, you know, or the music box sort of in their first incarnations. Right. But as a kid in Chicago, you were still able to be exposed to house music from a pretty young age. I, I think I read that, you know, you were going to kind of high school dances where they were playing yeah. house music. Well, absolutely. Well, I mean, by the time I actually started going out, there had already had been uh, what they call high school sop, uh, sock hops. <laughs> so <laughs> mainly the Catholic schools in, in Chicago uh, were really highly responsible for this. And it was a way to raise money. And, uh, you know, uh, especially because a lot of Catholic schools at the time were like, you know, uh, separated by gender, all boys school, all girls school, you know, saying so this is a way for the, you know, the schools to inter intermingle. So they would actually throw, you know, these parties, but these parties became legendary. So and, the music was great. Oh, uh, well, I mean, no, you could go to the high school party. Frankie Knuckles would be there playing. And my first DJ ever heard in the, in the high school party was Ron Hardy. For as a matter of fact, you know, at Mendel High School, which happened to be three blocks away from my house where I grew up, it was on Mendel High School was on uh, 111th and King Drive. I was on 107th and King Drive. So go figure. But the the point is, is that the culture was already being intermingled into the to the community. You know, it wasn't necessarily. I wouldn't say it was commercial. Like, oh, everybody knew about it because it wasn't like that. It was underground. As a matter of fact, it was very specific. And uh, it was a specific way to play records. It was a specific way to uh, sensibility that was there. But there was also something that was developed out of, once again, an older ethos, you know, from the loft, the gallery, and, um, and, and then the history of Frankie coming from New York and Robert Williams coming from New York and trying to recreate what he experienced at the loft in Chicago. So it had already been developed in, on, a, on a higher level. So by the time it was reaching us, you know, it was something that was already developed. You see what I'm saying? So yeah. we were just kind of coming in it. So then you also bring the aspect of the newness of, of something, you know, reaching a younger community and, you know, new budding minds, you know. So now it's, whew, 
it's but on it's, the next level. <laughs> it's pretty incredible though, to be able to, to put your high school dance within that lineage. I mean, when I think about my high school dances and the sort of music that was being played there, <laughs> you couldn't trace it back to David Mancuso, right? <laughs> right. Just, hey man, I mean, it, you think about it, yeah, it's pretty magical, you know, and we, we, you know, we have to, you know, give thanks to people like Frankie Knuckles and, and Robert Williams and Ron Hardy, you know, uh, even though they were older cats, they created a, an intermediate situation, made themselves available, you know, to play for a young community. But, you know, and, and it also what it did is it got those kids ready for the real club, you know what I'm saying? And... You know, once again, this was this is underground stuff, man. This is not like, you know, oh yeah, everybody's doing it. It's more like the more underground it was, the the cooler it was. The more radical it was, the more DIY it was, the more cooler it was. It wasn't like what everybody was doing. You know what I'm saying? As a matter of fact, if you were into this kind of thing, you could, you know, you'd definitely be called an outcast. See, it's all glorified and everything. Now everybody can get behind it and, you know. Oh, house music, you know, and do all that. But back then, it wasn't like that. As a matter of fact, it'd be more like, oh, oh, so you, you one of them fags, you know what I'm saying? I mean, and you would be, once again, put in that that category, ostracized, you know, uh, beneath uh, respect, you know what I mean? Weak, you know, just because of the type of music that you went to and the fact that you wanted to, to wear nice clothes and you, you know, you wanted to look a certain way and that kind of thing, which is what, you know, the whole house music culture was about, you know, expensive clothes, expensive, comfortable clothes. Let me put it like that. Something you could dance in. You could dance in, which you look good, you know, certain hairstyles. And you could, you know, you could tell pretty much on the streets, man, who went to the party, who didn't. But at some point that, that sense of it being something underground that you would maybe be ostracized for getting involved in, that sort of started to disappear. It became more heterosexual. Well, it started to disappear and it became more popularized, I want to say, in the 90s, throughout the 80s, bro. No. You know what I mean? It just wasn't like that. I mean, it, you know, obviously it became a stronger ethic, you know, in the mid 80s or whatever. By the time I was like doing high school parties and things, I think it was start, you know, it was like more common thing. If you went to, if you wanted to dance, this is what you listen to kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? But not everything was so accessible because you also you had to, to understand too, there was also the Hot Mix 5 playing on the radio too, WBMX. So that also created an interest and a sensibility of like this dance, electronic dance music or this music you dance to kind of thing. And so it, it developed a, a level of, um, I guess maybe understanding about what it was, but that was commercial. Because it's on the radio. And yeah, you know, Farley or Steve Sucurley and these guys, they, you know, um, Scott Smoker Seals, Kenny Jam and Jason, Ralphie Rosario, these guys were plugged into what was going on, but they were doing more of a hot mix. You know, they had to do a certain amount of time. They had to get it in there, get it out, versus club where, you know, it opens up at 12, ends at 12 the next day. It's a different kind of aesthetic. So once again, then there's another separation you know, radio and then the club and then the type of things that happen in the club and the type of things that everybody can hear on the radio. You know, it didn't really, to be honest with you, come become cool, like everybody accepts it. To just be honest, to the 2000s, bro. Wow. The millennium. I'm just being honest because it wasn't that 
accepted like that. And not everybody knew about it. It was more, you know, still underground in certain senses. Uh, Derek Carter and these guys that were doing loft parties or whatever in Chicago in particular, and I'm speaking about that, you know, they were loft parties. It was underground. It was underground scene for them too. And uh, these guys were catering to a different kind of audience. People that were more, it was more of a diverse audience and people that were moving in from the suburbs and that kind of thing. Had been, you know, grew up in the suburbs, coming and living in the city now and getting into things. And rave culture was also intertwined with that. And it was a different thing. So once again, when it became widely accepted, it's like, this is, you know, Chicago and how is the millennium. Yeah, I mean, there is definitely still underground house music now, yeah. and and the scene still remains underground to a certain extent. But I, I think what you're saying is that there's maybe something that's difficult to grasp about how underground it really was back then. Well, I'll give you the difference. I'll tell you what, right now. The, the thing is, is that when you're talking about a music box or a power plant or a warehouse or a paradise garage or these places, there you, you know there's several different things at play. One of them, Dope sound system. Sound system was put together specifically for you to feel the music. A DJ that's playing the music in particular to, to one, you know, provoke a certain mood, sell records, et cetera, et cetera. The staffing, the way that the club is set up, you know, there's the, a lot of aesthetics that are going on there, okay? And there's a certain sensibility that's created out of the community that goes there every week, you know? And once again, a lot of these places too, at the beginning where they were membership only clubs. So you had to know somebody, you know, to get in. So it's a different kind of, it's it's like a world in, outside of the world. So it's a different mentality. And versus just going to a club, you pay $5, you go get a, a shot and, and some beer and they're playing house music in the background. And it's like, oh yeah, it's great. It's not the same thing. You know, we're talking about something that's put together specifically to to evoke, you know, and to excite you and to entertain you in a certain kind of way versus something that's more like, you know, we're we're a bar and we're serving drinks. So now people are more exposed to bars and bar culture. It's not the same, you know, so the mentalities are just totally different. You know, so it's totally apples and oranges. You know, yeah, they may be fruit, but they're definitely different. You know what I mean? So, you know, and, and out of that, those people that actually participated in these things, they're different people, too. There's a level of sophistication that's developed when you have heard some of the best music in the world. Sure. You know, you know. You were too young to to directly engage in right. a lot of that, but you still were able to connect with a lot of these figures. I know Ron Hardy was someone who was very, very important to you. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, how did you guys come to meet? I, I met <laughs> met Ron after the fact and I had uh, met him around 89 or 90, as a matter of fact, uh, after my record uh, had come out. And this is uh, Altered, Altered States. States. Yeah, and this is after the whole era of the music box. I had Actually, I went to the music box. I went to a later music box that was on 22nd Street that they did for a while. I didn't go to the underground, and I didn't go to the original uh, music box, which was on 16th in Indiana. But I heard him when I was younger at Mendel. So we're talking about 85, 86. So to connect with him and have him say, hey, man, I'm playing your record, you know, and to sit and talk with him was like, oh, it's amazing, you know. But I met him through another friend of mine who become pretty cool and close friends with uh, 
Terrence Hardison, which was uh, Ron Hardy's uh, roommate at the time. And, you know, Ron was actually sick at that time, but still trying to come back. And uh, he was selling his, some of his records. And so John, uh, which his name is John McCullen, as a matter of fact, is uh, was going over there and hanging out with Ron and buying some of his records and helping him out, that kind of thing. And so he's like, Ron, you want to go over here? And, you know, so I went over there with him a couple of times. And when we did, we connected. He was cool. He was a nice guy. Sorry to say, you know, after maybe two or three visits, you know, last time I saw him and next time I saw him, he was in a casket, you know, yeah, went to his funeral and that kind of thing. But, uh, you know. But yeah. he'd been he'd been playing your record. Yeah, he he'd been playing all the states, and uh, he's like, yeah, I really like that record, you know, da 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 da. And, you know, nice guy, really nice guy. You know, uh, previous to that, you know, Ron was, you know, known for being temperamental and, and and mean and that kind of thing. From you know, from the stories I was hearing, you know, and he used to, you know, he was he had his choice of drug, so it made him, you know, but he was a genius. You know what I mean? I mean, really, like, powerful dude. Like, really powerful guy. That's the best way I can explain, you know. And to to witness that kind of energy being galvanized in the room and by one man, I can't, you know. So I want to talk about that record, Altered States. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge one for house music in general, yeah. for techno as well. Big, big record for you. Mm. You made it when you were extremely young, shockingly young. Mm. How, how old were you when it came out? Or well, not when it came out, but when you when you produced it. Uh, I was uh, about fourteen, bro. And it know. bounced around for a long time. Yeah, I kept it. I tried to keep it to myself because you know it was like one of those things I would play to. Because we we were doing that back in the day. We were making our own tracks and that kind of thing, trying to, you know. Like that's what kind of set it set you aside from everybody else. Everybody can go buy records, but you know you can make your own tracks. So that made you, you know, uh, set you set you apart from everybody else. And uh, out of that time, uh, I created Alter States, uh, Afterlife, and Making Love, and tracks that never people have never heard before. Well, nowadays, you know what I'm saying. But stuff that I used to play at the parties, you know, and that's what would, you know, that's what helped bring my identity into fruition. You know. It's Ron Trent and what I was about. So, you know, it was like my part of my arsenal. And then it came out uh, years later when I finally trusted somebody to put it out. Because, you know, there had been all these stories about putting out your record and you never see any money. And, well, of course, that happened to me, too. Yeah, I was going to say that's <laughs> it, it was what more than a decade until you finally saw yeah, anything. From that record. Yeah, man, I think I might have got one check from that. Back in that time, and then after that, that was it. You know, mind you, it had been licensed so many times, and it had been repressed and repressed oh and wound up in a video game. Yeah, right, exactly. So it was crazy, you know. But yeah, you know, I mean, it's, I, I paid my dues. That's how I looked at it. You know, I paid my dues. So it's an interesting record for you, I think, in terms of the the sound that you've become known for over the course of your career. It's quite a it's quite a minimal record. Quite minimal instrumentation. What what did you make it with? The keyboard was a Roland. I'm not gonna say it's a D50 because I, I don't I don't remember that. Uh, Roland 909 and a 626, and it was ran all ran through a mixer, like a regular mixer, GLI mixer at the time, and uh, in someone's house. You know, it was just bored. You know, what did they say? Uh, necessity is the mother of invention. So you know you. 
And when you're really striving to try to articulate your ideas, you you know, you, you become creative. I mean, what can I say? You know, whether it be tapping on a, a drum or the table, whatever you do, you know, you, you, you got to get it out. And so that was one of the pieces. In particular, Chicago, uh, even New York, we were highly influenced by, you know, um, Europop and New Wave and alternative music and punk and things of that nature. And kind of more of your eccentric type of music, you know, or maybe we're considered obscure, which is why a record like Your Love by Frankie Knuckles and Jamie Principal was so huge because it was nothing that sounded like that that came out of Chicago that was that funky, but that eccentric as well. So I was always into that kind of stuff, you know, i.e. why the strings on all the states are the way they are. It's a kind of ethereal thing, but it's got this super, you know, this bass line. And I was inspired by that. Once again, coming from a percussionist background, you know, made sure that the drums were doing a certain kind of thing, you know. And that break that everybody talks about, you know, in the record is something, you know, I, I hadn't heard that before, you know, wanted to try it, you know, try different uh, time signatures and things of that nature. And that's what I did, you know, and I still do it to this day. But I mean, then nobody was doing that, this, that kind of swing and in the record. And so it just all came together, you know, it just really just happened. Yeah, in terms of the the length, the the kind of rhythmic quality, kind of compositional nature of the whole thing. I mean, it feels like a Ron Trent record. That one came out in, I believe, 1990. Right, correct. The next record, which I think came out in about 92, sounded very, very different just in terms of the of the textures. So what, what happened in there? Uh, you know, I mean, musical development. You know, sensibility. I mean, you know, once again, these are humans driving machines. So it's like, you know, go through experiences and then, you know, you create based upon that experience. And, uh, you know, so I got a little older, seeing a little bit more, been listening to a little bit more. Uh, maybe my second trip to New York, you know, on my own, because I, you know, I'm, I'm actually from the East Coast. I was born in Massachusetts, but uh, raised in Chicago. And, you know, we would go back East every, you know, every once in a while to visit you know, um, family, but uh, I went out there by myself, you know, for the new music seminar in 1991 and, you know, went to check out Frankie and Dave Morales and Timmy Regisford and all, you know, it just, it opened up my mind to a different kind of thing too, you know. I wonder if the instrument that you were using changed as well, if you were, if you were making music somewhat differently than, than you were when you did Altered States. Well, not really, because up until because you know also people don't they don't really talk about it too much. But Terry Hunter and I had a musical group for a while, and that musical group was uh, uh, UBQ Mixed Productions, which was myself and Terry and this other guy by the name of Aaron Smith. And in that time, Aaron was the more musical guy. He you know he was a keyboard player. I could play keys, but he could definitely, you know, that was his thing. And we worked out of the studio a lot. And uh, we used the R8, you know, at that time to make stuff, you know what I mean? But it was more basically drum machine based, MIDI and drum machine based. I didn't really start changing things up until I started working on the MPC 60. And that's during the time that I started to uh, work with uh, Clubhouse Records and that kind of thing. And... Um, you know, they, these are the guys that introduced me to the NPC, and it, that changed how I approached stuff. Because then I could sample, I could make my own drums, I could 
you know, it was a different kind of level, you know, level of creativity. And, you know, learning that environment was different. So in that, you know, the articulation was different because the environment was different. And then I was different. I was older. <laughs> so, you know, it was just a, a different thing. My understanding is that kind of during that period of the early 90s, things had started to change with the scene in Chicago a bit, mm-hmm. um, which I believe kind of led to you starting prescription records. Correct. Mainly what was happening in Chicago was that you know, we had come out of this era of big, you know, house music tracks and this kind of thing. And this is what we got, you know, known for, you know, tracks and, you know, and tracks records and, you know, the old Chicago house sound. Meantime, I had started in the late 80s to play more newer music, which they were calling at the time New York Underground. And this was music that, you know, was being produced out of New York or from Italy, as a matter of fact, and various places, but it was more of a new electronic sound, but soulful. And like primarily what guys were playing in New York, you know, Frankie Knuckles had moved back at that time, Dave Morales, like I mentioned, Timmy Redsford, you know, there was, it was a new thing happening. And, uh, you know, so I had started kind of playing that kind of stuff and Chicago was stuck in the classics, as we say, the disco and the tracks, and that was their thing. And I spoke about this too that before in, in other interviews where I was I was playing uh, after I was clubbed in Chicago, and it was called the Reactor, which was mainly disco classics based. You know what I'm saying? Or club music. We used to call it, that's another thing we used to call it club music too. You know, because music for the club, but. You know, I used to try to incorporate new elements into that, you know what I'm saying, as a part of the whole program. And Chicago was more interested in trying to relive the music box, relive the power plant, relive the warehouse. They weren't having it like that. You know, meantime, industry is moving forward, you know, and all the dope clubs were in New York. You know what I'm saying? So it was it was a changing of hands, if you will. You know, our scene more or less went underground again in Chicago, and then it became you know more commercial stuff started happening because now you have uh, other clubs opening up that were more like yeah we're opening up a dance club, you know, but the music they're playing is, but they were modeling their clubs off of New York clubs, so you would have the sound system and these kind of things, or they you know trying to do that, but then. They didn't have the aesthetics to go along with it, if you understand what I'm saying. So it just didn't translate well. And particularly for, you know, African-Americans and Latins, Latin Americans, there was no place really to go because they were also being prejudiced at the door, too, with, uh, with, with that, even in the 90s. Didn't, you know, they didn't like you. You didn't, you know, you weren't the right color. They weren't letting you in. So it was predominantly being held for more of a, uh, an audience that wasn't as educated about music. And probably had been raised on radio and commercial music and that kind of thing in Chicago. So it was a, a, a weird time, you know. So what happened is that Shay and I wanted to redefine what was going on, you know. Uh, so we got together. We started working in Detroit. We recorded out of Kevin Sinison's studio primarily and, uh, you know, worked on a new sound, you know. So it's like, okay, tracks, fine. We're going to do tracks that have a different kind of fidelity. It's really interesting. This is music for Chicago 
that's heavily inspired by New York and is made in, in Detroit, Detroit. That's kind of an interesting way of of bringing it in. I know. <laughs> I know. So, I mean, it's it's about once again galvanizing energies, you know, and um New York was where the innovation was happening. Detroit had had its stint, you know, with, you know, Derek May and Kevin Sonneson and that kind of thing. Because, you know, they had commercial success, you know, Strings of Life was huge. Big Fun and Inner City was huge. So, you know, these guys made a lot of money, but there was nothing going on in the city. Same thing with Chicago, nothing really going on in the city. I mean, there's guys doing stuff, but, you know, and New York was bustling. You know, had the dope clubs, the dope music, the dope deep, you know, the, and, and the culture. See, the culture never stopped. They never stopped. And that's why it's so strong to this day. It's such a, you know, because it's been going on since the late 60s to now. You know what I mean? So, you know, it it, it was it's still powerful and bustling and, 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 and doing its thing. So that's where we would go get our inspiration. We go to New York, visit, check it out, go back to Detroit, record. Go to Chicago, go to the office and put it out. And there's a very famous instance of that exact thing happening in the form of Morning Factory. Correct. Yeah. I mean, the, the big story is you guys <laughs> go to Sound Factory, go back to Detroit, yep. and it's like you just have to keep the the inspiration going. That's the story, that's, right? That's it. That's exactly what happened. We we uh, went to Sound Factory. Uh, Dream Rescues was playing at the time, which is, you know, we should check him out because he was so... The, the way that he did things was very interesting. He had an interesting aesthetic, you know what I'm saying? And he had the best club, and if you ask us in the world, you know, the greatest sound system. So bought records, took a took a trip, obviously, to Sound Factory, went back to Detroit, and, like, the next day, you know, we're in the studio. And I, you know, sampled one of the records we had bought and just, you know, rocked it out, basically. It became a thing. You know, and you, when you create something as powerful like that, or just, you know, even various things that I've done over the years, it's like you, you kind of know this is something special. You know what I'm saying? And that's Morning Factory was one of those records. And uh, Junior Vasquez actually wound up playing it. And that's actually why I got it called Morning Factory, because <laughs> it was played in the morning at Sound Factory. <laughs> True story. Yeah, a lot of people maybe who don't know your career so well or know your work so well, would basically say you're a Chicago DJ and and kind of stop there. But you've been deeply associated with New York for a long time. You, you ended up moving there. Yeah. And that's where kind of a, a lot of your career has taken place. Yeah, I mean, uh, on, a, on a large scale in terms of, you know, like commercial success and different things and industry success, yeah, it was in New York. You know, I did a lot of big things on the underground tip in Chicago. You know, also a prescription, but like when I moved to New York, I mean, I did is you know the game it was a game changer. So I was in New York for about ten years. You know, I had my own residency in New York. I had one of the biggest residencies in New York. Um, you know, so while body and soul was going on and and the shelter uh, was happening, the other big party in the city was my party, which was Giant Step. You know, and Giant Step that was developed out of Giant Step Records that had been around for some years and. They wanted me to be their resident DJ because they wanted to start back start back up as a party and uh, be an A&R man for the label. And so, you know, we did, you know, a lot of a lot of big business like that. Worked with Sony Music and a lot of major record label artists that either were signed to the label or got dropped. 
you know, so then I would remix or produce these people and then I would play it at the club and reintroduce it to the people. And, you know, we sold records, made big things happen. You know, um, some of everybody came through, you know, we did, uh, well, one of the major things that we wound up doing was introducing Donnie. Uh, this is an artist, uh, Donnie, that was from Atlanta, who actually used to be highly associated with NDIRE. And uh, actually, NDIRE's two backgrounds with Donnie, as a matter of fact. And and uh, we we signed him, and he wound up coming out on Motown Records and that kind of thing. That was a big deal, and w- w- the whole way that happened. And uh, working with Jody Watley, working with James Samuels, which is uh, Seal's brother, working with uh, you know, Femi Kuti, uh, uh, introducing Jill Scott, uh, Erica Badu. I mean, you know, various, you know, folk. I was also I also created another whole sound for Giant Step. Giant Step had it was a very specific party, very jazz funk, like what I call it, electro jazz funk influenced party. You know what I'm saying? And very jazz influenced jazz dance party, if you will. If you can imagine that, but very heavy, like extremely heavy. So like basically on people's days off, you know, like uh, Timmy or Danny Cribbit or Francois or Joe or these, you know, when they went, you know, they were at the party too, you know, and it was a great exchange that was going on because they were listening to stuff I was playing. I was listening to stuff they were playing, but I played Body and Soul like, like quite a bit, you know. As a matter of fact, I did like the last Body and Soul in what became, because it, it it turned from being vinyl, club vinyl, to this other club, which I can't even name, I can't even remember, which it didn't last that long. But, uh, you know, that was the last time Body and Soul happened. I played that party. But there was a, a, an exchange that was going on with us, with the music. We were talking to each other. And that's how, that's actually how it's supposed to happen because we we were introducing music to, to, the, to the public, but also introducing the music to each other. And then that's how records got sold. That's how things became popular, you know. That's when, when there's a community like that happening. I mean, there's a, there's a level of... Uh, innovation that happens, you know. So you got to New York in what year? We actually moved in uh, 1996. And then if you stayed for about 10 years, I mean, this this sort of really incredible period of exchange and just of great parties and great music that you were talking about. I mean, if you kind of believe the, or if you follow the usual sort of history of that era, you would have also kind of witnessed the end of it too. Yeah, I did. In certain senses, because New York is not the same. After 9-11, that changed everything. That's the best way I can say it. It changed everything because let's say around like 97 to 2000, I started doing the Giant Set Party 1999, 2000 is when we started it off. We wound up ending it around 2003, I want to say. But uh, 9-11 happened in, two, that was it, 2001, 2002? 2001. <sighs> yeah, man, it was bad. Because, you know, I mean, my part, we, we lost some people that used to come to the party. You know, literally, I mean, you know. And, you know, I didn't even want to go, go into that. But the point is that, like, uh, the party itself was on West Broadway and Canal. You can look straight down West Broadway and look at the towers. 
like 12 blocks away. You see what I'm saying? So it was right there. So when that happened, it had an effect not only in the city and everything else. I mean, it had an effect on like later what we were doing party wise and that kind of thing. Cause people were one, people didn't want to come back out. It was very hard to get the momentum going. Again. Oh yeah. No, cause people, you know, I mean, New York is a fearless city, right? Well, that there was a major fear in that city at that time. People didn't want to go out. They were afraid to go into Manhattan, i.e. why Brooklyn is so popular now. That's what happened, you know. And so then, you know, the energy, the energy moved, you know. And, uh, you know, we had certain sponsorships and things of that nature. And a lot of people got laid off because there was no money. You know, the World Trade Center, I mean, it's an economic base. And it, it affected a lot of different things, you know. But uh, in that, it just really changed the scope of how people related to each other. New York has always been a fearless, radical city, and it, it, it implanted the chip of fear into the community, and it just changed things, you know, so that's the best way I can describe it. The fact that things had changed, did that play into your decision to eventually leave New York? Well, it was somewhat, yes, because uh, it became difficult to work not only in New York, but in the world, you know. And uh, I had just had my youngest uh, child, my, my lady and, and, and I decided that financially it really wasn't feasible to be in New York because it's expensive. And then, you know, I'm not doing a party anymore. I'm not traveling as much anymore because, you know, just the, the whole component. So I had to go back to Chicago and just build it back up, you know, and save some money. You know, and that kind of thing. So it was a, it was a just a financial and family decision. And as a producer, since that time that, that you moved, I mean, you've been quite prolific. Uh, Future Vision Records. Yeah. There's been so much music that you've put out yeah. on that label. Just that, you know, doing what I do. You know, I mean, literally, I mean, for real. I mean, just being on survival uh, tactics, also trying to be innovative, thinking about the future, literally, you know, and just constantly staying ahead of things, you know, and not getting bogged down because, you know, it's life, man. I mean, things are going to go up and go down, but, you know, you got to get back up. You know, you got to keep it moving. And, you know, I've been through some hard times before, 9-11 being one of them. People weren't paying money. People weren't doing parties, you know. It was just another whole thing. And music as well. People were you know, interested in buying music when they're afraid. You know, death is going to, you know, it's it's a different thing. It's a different reality. And America had never dealt with anything like that before. So it just freaked everything out for a little while, you know. But uh, we're still here. Yeah. <laughs> the music that you've made for the last, you know, eight to, to ten years, really, I mean, it it's kind of, um, it feels like an especially kind of built up and developed version of the music that you've always been making. The tracks tend to be really, really long. They tend to be really lush uh, in terms of instrumentation. Tell me a little bit about how you hit on that sound. Well, I mean, I haven't necessarily, I don't, I don't want to say, well, yeah, I've come full circle because I'm still processing and creating and that kind of thing. But it's like, you know, I went through the stages of doing straight up electronic based drum machine music to doing collaborations to then doing straight up live music. You know, like, because that's what I was doing with Giant Step. It was like a, a true live meets electronic kind of kind of thing. I was working a lot with the uh, guys from Groove Collective, which was a uh, jazz front group that was developed out of Giant Stuff. And uh, those were my buddies. So, you know, we would record a lot and, 
you know, that's how I kind of developed the whole new giant step sound. And so it went from that to going back into, you know, just dealing with me and the computer, you know, and me and logic and drum machine kind of thing, you know? So it's like, once again, I'm, you know, different environment, different art- articulation. You know, I've gotten old, I've gotten wiser. I know how to do things a little differently, you know? And then I built up another studio uh, in my new home in, in Chicago at the time. And then, um, you know, I mean, I developed another whole, you know, spirit there, you know? So that's what you hear. That's what you hear. And in terms of how I articulate things with my fingers and my mind, that's just because that's that's spirit living itself out, if you know what I mean. It's just, a, it's happening, you know? So you're back in Chicago now. Yeah. How involved in the scene are you in Chicago now? I mean, it's interesting. The music that Chicago has maybe been best known for mm. for the last number of years hasn't necessarily been house music. <sighs> interesting. Yeah, because of what uh, the Kanye West and hip hop. Well, I was. Stuff, I you know? mean, I was thinking about footwork and and, oh, and yeah, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not, I'm, I'm going to say that I'm not that familiar with the footwork scene. Uh, I'm not going to sit there and say, oh, yeah, you know, I know. I really don't know. It's a little bit too fast for me, but what I can appreciate is the fact that kids are dancing. That makes me feel good, you know, and that there's something out of Chicago, then, you know, and that, and that kind of thing. But I can't say oh, I know all about it because I don't. I respect it for what it is, you know. Yeah, Chicago is a very interesting place because you have a lot of talent there. A lot of good things there, a lot of talented uh, producers, artists, and that kind of thing. But the industry's not there. And that's the problem. And it hasn't been there for a while. For a while. And it's very present. When you have industry and you have something that's moving, and it, it creates a certain level of professionalism. And that's necessary in order to keep order and manage things, and it's not necessarily there. Not only that... People are, I think, a little short-sighted about things sometimes because they're just wrapped into their own four-block radius of thought. And, uh, you know, instead of kind of expanding things. Now, people started to, you know, travel and do this, that, and the other, but they haven't quite been able to create something out of that inspiration, like going somewhere and then coming back home and then creating. You know, that necessarily hasn't happened. Uh, there's guys trying to do stuff, you know, stuffed here and there, but it's it's very, you know, as a whole, it's not what it used to be. Nothing can stay the same, but uh, it's just that it's, uh, you know, I'm, I haven't seen it yet. I did stuff in the city. I had like one of the, the biggest parties in the city it was called Africa High Five, which was a more Afrobeat based party. You know, I played everything, but it was like using Africa as the aesthetic of the mother of civilization and music and kind of expounding from there. And I did a lot of interesting things and had a lot of interesting guests. And uh, we lasted about five years. And it was, I mean, it was pretty serious, you know. And um, once again, that's one party. You know, it doesn't control the city. But uh, it's going to take, you know, several great parties or some clubs to open up there to really do something that, you know, to, to shock the system, you know. Makes me me think a little bit about when, um, you know, when Frankie Knuckles came to Chicago in the late 70s mm-hmm. and he kind of brought something with him and it started something kind of creating 
or, or maybe kind of like offering a, like a little bit of a, of a nudge to the scene. I mean, I wonder if it would take something like that now. I don't know, you know, because see, people have gotten themselves into this. People think they know everything now, you know? So it's like, it, instead of it being, uh, people being kind of open to things, they have become a little jaded to things. That's not house music. That's not this, that's not that. You know, I, I don't know that, so then it's not cool, you know? And it's, the social behavior, I mean, you know, that's another whole conversation, man. I mean, people are so, you know, we could have that, that's, that's another whole thing because you have a lot of people that hide behind names and genres to try to be cool. That's why I said, well, yeah, they become blown up into the millennium because a lot of these people that are into house music now, they weren't into it back then like that. You know, it was like, it was like that basically. Oh, what is that? You know, that kind of thing. Now that's that, you know. Now it's glorified. Oh, yeah, Chicago House. Yeah, I've always been down for Chicago House. No, you weren't. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so, you know, it's interesting to see because also there's some brothers in Chicago, the Chosen Few, uh, which have been uh, going on for a while, but they've been very successful having these these uh, yearly, this annual event, which brings out thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And so now it's become this big reunion that happens every year and then they're playing house music and, you know, they've been pushing that whole thing. So now everybody's rallying behind that. And that's once again, something that they can hide out in, you know, cause everybody's doing it. When it wasn't cool and everybody wasn't doing it, they weren't really down with it like that. So in saying that, you know, yeah, somebody coming in and nudging the scene a little bit, they could also be hated upon very easily. If you know what I mean. Absolutely. You know, because they've gotten, people have gotten entangled into genres and what's cool, what's hot, what's not. And, you know, it's, to me, living in these times is more cluttered versus those times. You see what I'm saying? You had jazz, rock, funk, soul, disco, you know, whatever the case may be. But they were all kind of, oh yeah, gospel. and But they were rooted in the same places somewhat. You know what I mean? And it wasn't a whole bunch of you know, finger point. Now it's finger point because everybody is trying to identify themselves with something. Everything's a lot more segregated. It's very, a rock record or it's a dance record. It's very, or segregated. it's a rock dance record right. or something. Yeah. Yeah. Genres, subgenres. And then, it, you know, and then it's like you said, it's segregated. So it keeps people, you know, versus going to a party and listen to a rock record followed by a jazz record, followed by something that might be disco with a funk, you know, and that's what the party was about back then, you know, which is really what the party is about now, <laughs> to be honest with you, really a true party. But the thing is, is that, you know, people are so, they got their heads up their own behinds, as we shall say, you know. I wanted to ask about Frankie Knuckles. Um, we lost him this year. And I mean, he was the sort of the godfather of this Chicago scene and of house music in general. I mean, as someone who's lived through so much of this history, what do you think his passing means? That's the end of an era, man. It's, just, it's sad. It's sad for me, man. I, you know, I, we lost him while I was over here, and that, that was that really hurt for various reasons. I mean, I you know I really was uh, out of it for like a couple of days, but uh, for me, it represented 
the ending of an era in certain senses. You know, this guy was there from the beginning. You know what I mean? And he was relevant from then to now. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, oh, yeah, he did something back then. And then, you know, we check him out and, you know, he's, hey, you know, yeah, he pioneered. No, he was relevant. He, he was around and was still about trying to push the, you know, push the, the culture, push himself, which I think, it, which, you know, brought on his demise in certain senses. I think he worked himself to death, man. You know, you, you know. Uh, traveling and doing all these things, man, and you're on the road and you can't eat like the way you need to, and you and know. doing this for thirty years. Oh man, planes and you know, I you know, it's a lot, man. You know, that's why, in certain senses, you know, him and Larry the Van, man, they profits in this music, man. You know, they literally sacrifice for this thing in a, in a big kind of way, and to this day, industrialize something that. It's known around the world. Made DJing a profession. People don't think about it like that. But once again, you know, when I was coming, I wasn't like, it was highly popularized in the world or even in your own home. It's like, DJ, what the hell are you talking about a DJ? You know, a radio DJ, you know, a club DJ. Oh, please. You know, so these guys created something that was, enables these kids, enables me to be able to say, oh yeah, I'm a DJ. And the people be like, oh, okay. Something respectable. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, I want the brother to be in pain or anything like that, man. But, you know, I think, you know, he should be, you know, uh, c continuously honored because he also ushered in my career. He was the guy that him and, and Morales, in particular Frankie, played off the States on a commercial level because they had commercial visibility and enabled Brother Ron Trent to be here. You know, it's, uh, man, constant, uh, un, you know, forever gratitude. But uh, that's what it represents for me. I mean, and I could sit and talk about it all day, but that's, those are some of the points. Yeah. When you came in today, you mentioned that you're over here in large part to work on a record. Yeah. Tell me a bit about the new project. Well, uh, we're mixing it down now, but it's um, basically got the opportunity to to record uh, with Jerome Sinningham and uh, and AB, who was an artist I kind of introduced, you know. And AB is going on and doing doing his own thing with Deep Black Records and developing his whole catalog and scene, you know. And uh, you know, I, I said uh, let's let's create something. So we started creating, and when we started creating, we just didn't stop. You know, it just kind of happened. It was like, you can do an album. So we did an album. You know, it was uh, really an album about mixing all and blending all the energies together, because we're coming from different places, different sounds, you know, galvanizing all that and putting it into to, to one record, you know. So SAT is what it's called, actually. <laughs> so we're just sitting him, AB and Trent, or sound audio test. You know? Pretty cool. Is so, it going to be a new sound? Definitely a new sound. You know, it might sound like some other things, but it's it's different. It's definitely different. Um, that's all I'll say about that right now. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs>